Join us on the Recovery Matters podcast, where we celebrate the power of resilience and explore multiple pathways to recovery. Well, Randy, welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Thanks for having me on. This is great. My name is Randy Anderson, and I'm a person living in long-term recovery. And what that means to me is I haven't used any alcohol, drugs, or mood-altering substance since January 9th, 2005. Mm. 18 years. Yeah, that's me. Sounds like you said that before. A few times. Yeah. A few few thousand times, probably. But yeah. Uh, You're a recovery coach. You're a recovery coach professional a recovery coach, professional facilitator. You have built a career and a company right here, Bold North Recovery, around your ability to facilitate training. Uh, By all accounts, you're an outstanding trainer. But tell me a little bit about your your addiction history, what what, what life was like. I think I always, I try, you know, and you, Phil, I love, I think I love when I hear you talk and talk, how we always try to spin the story to the recovery side, right? Yes. Like, right? Like, and I, I like to do that too, but I think it's important also. I think that for me, the part that I like to talk about when I'm asked a question like that is people ask you all the time, like, what was the, what was the moment or epiphany when you decided maybe recovery mm-hmm. was something you'd give a shot at, right? And and at, this is after, so I was raided by a DEA task force and I was thrown in jail and multiple charges and all that fun stuff. But the one thing that what the criminal justice system did do for me is they offered me treatment. (laughs) Like, you know, my story isn't that different than a lot of people. Just I got a a law enforcement intervention is what started my journey. But I was, I, I, well, the first time I went to treatment, you know, to get help, I really said, they let me out of jail, of course, to go to treatment. I didn't even know what treatment was. I said, sign me up. Like, if any if anything to get me out of jail, I don't care. I'll do it, right? And I figured I'd just go there. I, I was enrolled in a 60-day outpatient program. And I just, I said, oh, I can do anything for 60 days. Like, I'll fake it until I make it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, you, that sounds so good to say until you actually try to do that. And I was about 30 days into treatment the first time. And a, a vehicle of mine got stolen by, guess what? A guy I met in treatment that I was friends with from my past. And I thought I could trust him, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> one of those. So I decided to, I had a pass from the treatment center and I was going to go. I took a cab home and I, I didn't have any place to go. No one to see. I'm there. I'm stuck by myself. And so I did what what people like me do. I just got some drugs and started using and, and got and got caught and got in a lot of trouble and sent back to jail and whatnot. And I always say it took me 10 months to complete a 60 day outpatient program. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I needed 10 months of help, right? Anyways, and so but I got when the, the time I came back the last time from jail to the treatment center when they were going to put me in the residential program, they they have everyone that comes in has to do a, a a UA right or urine analysis to see what's in your system and da da da, and they took me this guy named Mark Lindgren, which was the he was the primary counselor for the residential program. The guy was about six nine, three hundred pounds. He had done nine years in Fairbolt State Prison here in Minnesota. He had a reputation. Mark was known as the enforcer, and this was back in the I mean so early two thousands, and there was still the one of the only therapeutic communities left probably in the in the United States but called Eden House which had quite a reputation and uh but Mark takes me into this little small bathroom UA bathroom to get my UA he starts telling me what a stupid 
mother effer I am. And I can't believe you brought, because I brought drugs back to the sober home and I did all that stuff. And he says, I can't believe you brought drugs to a sober home. You got high here. You, you got federal charges pending. You have a state case pending. What are you, are you just an idiot, right? He's just ripping me. But he said something that I'll, that I'll never forget, which really changed my, that was the moment. He said, you know, I don't know why I'm wasting my breath because this recovery shit isn't for you and you can't do it. And, uh, and little did he know, and little did I know that what he did is he directly pushed my father button that day because he said I couldn't do it. And I realize now after treatment and therapy that I had lived my entire life up to that point, trying to please my dad. Mm -hmm. Like I was never good enough. I, my, my dad is the kind of dad that said things like second places for losers, da, da, da. Like, so either you win first or you're no one. Right. Anyways. And I'd never done anything. I never heard my father up to this point in my life. Tell me he's proud of me. He's never said he loved me. Uh, just a really tough dad. Right. Do you think he said that intentionally to like, oh, yeah. get, it was re definitely a reverse psychological ploy. Uh, so no, no <laughs> doubt in my mind, I, Mark now is retired and I'm actually good friends with my original counselor, that mm -hmm. counselor. And I asked him many years later, I said, why would you do that to anyone? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like that's a pretty dangerous slope. And now, I mean, now I went to school and I'm a counselor and I, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd ever have the guts to do that to someone. Cause, cause what could happen is the other thing, the other right. way. Right. Yeah. And, and Mark said to me, he goes, you're Andy, you're no out. You're right. And I've only done that. He was a counselor for 35 years because I've done that three times in my 35 years of being a counselor. The first time I did it, the guy stayed in treatment for about two weeks. He left the program. He came back to the program, found recovery. The second time I did that, it was a little younger person, a younger man. He got really mad. He stormed out of the place, left, overdosed, and died that night. Whoa. The third, the third time I did it was you. And I think he says, I think it turned out pretty good. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, I don't know. Like, I I don't know if I'd ever have the courage, the guts, the smarts, maybe whatever you want to call it, to say that to someone because I'm too afraid it would go the bad, go the wrong way. Well, and, I yeah. think it's a, you have to have a strong intuition. That's your art of counseling, your art of coaching, where right. you have that tool in your belt, right? But how often you use it, you might not ever use it, but you have right. it there if it, you're called to use it in a certain situation. Tell me about your journey in recovery towards advocacy. Well, so I had to get, I got fired from a job for the first time in my life in 20. So I got out of prison in 2010. I got released from paper in 2011. I went to prison in 2005. So I did about, I did 60 months total behind bars. Uh, but when I got out of prison, uh, I went back into sales, which was really easy for me. I did home improvement sales, you know, I'm a pretty good talker. And with the criminal record, you're really, even as a white cisgender male, I'm really restricted on where, where, who will hire me and where I can work and all. You know that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you deal with you deal with people like myself all the time. And so I took a job. The home improvement industry, at least in Minnesota, I'm guessing across the United States, they really don't care what your background is if you can sell stuff, right? I mean, they'll they'll give anyone a job if you can make the company some money, right? And mm -hmm. I was pretty, good at it. I was pretty good at it, and so. But I got, so the first place I worked at out of prison was a real shady company, but I mean, they paid good and I made a ton of money there, but I just, eventually I couldn't take it. I was like, I, the owner didn't care. Like 
he's the kind of guy that would sell a bag full of poop to his mom if he could make money off of it. Like, right. And so that didn't just didn't sit well with me. So I left that job. I went to work for another place, uh, a better, you know, husband and wife ownership, a better company. And I there I, I got into a little bit more of a leadership role. I was training people and I was pretty good with electronics. I was setting up emails for new sales guys and stuff. Well, the owner and I ended up getting in an argument one day and he he fired me. And I was like, I've never been, never been fired from a job in my life. And I thought it really, it really shocked, it shocked me. And I, I did collect a little unemployment, but then I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my wife said, well, you've talked about like someday going back to school and, and becoming a counselor, right? I fell in, I actually fell in love with college and then I enrolled full-time at Minneapolis college doing their addiction counseling program. And, but there is where I really started learning about like the whole nonprofit world and advocacy. And I got involved with a student, with the student life organizations in the college. And I tell anyone, I don't care how old you are, like go check out student life at your college. Like you'll, it's a whole new world. Like it's really incredible. And I met a guy who named Mark Hasse and he said, uh, he goes, I think you should go testify at the Capitol uh about drug sentencing reform and i said what like what are you talking about and i had no idea any of that that world was all foreign to me and he goes yeah so there's this hearing coming up at the capitol where they're looking re looking to redo the felony drug sentencing in the state of minnesota and you have a pretty compelling story being sentenced to 87 months as a first time nonviolent drug user with no criminal history right you got you got the book thrown at you and you were lucky because you were white i'm like which i started to learn more about that so I said, okay, I'll I'll do it. And I I wrote my three minutes speech, you know, and timed it and and you know, lol. And but the part that was the most like what chain would have I I was at the at the college, they did this anti-stigma campaign in the addiction counseling club. Everyone at the college in the addiction counseling program for a week straight wore a shirt that had some phrase or logo on it. So like crackhead or 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 moral failure or whatever well i got there the campaign was over but they had all these t-shirts and there were three t-shirts left one said moral failure one said former inmate and one said felon and i'm like can i can i just have these shirts they're like sure can i take them so i decided that day when i testified at the capitol i wore a shirt that black shirt like this that just said felon across it and uh i'd never done anything like that and a lot some people got upset with me for like, cause I wore a t-shirt to the Capitol to testify. And cause I should have wore a suit, I guess is what I didn't, you know, others were thought it was perfect. You're there for felony drug sentencing reform. Like, and you're a felon. Why would you not wear a shirt that says felon on it? Like it's perfect. Well that, and I, so it was very <laughs> emotional day. I'll never forget. And I was near tears the entire time, like reading my three minute testimony. Cause it's my story. Right. And the next day on our, so in Minnesota, we have a newspaper called the Star and Tribune, which is our largest print newspaper in the state. And the next day on the front page, the below the fold, but below the fold was my picture of me wearing my felon shirt at the state capitol testifying. And it says felon testifies at drug sentencing reform hearing, Randy Anderson, blah, blah. And I was like, holy, sh holy shit. Like I'm on the, I'm on the front page of this newspaper, right? And that, and then I did it a few more times. The same, you know, went and testified at a few more hearings for that. And we ended up passing the law. And and because of that law, about 700 less people go to prison every year. Uh, they get offered services or treatment first before they get before they get thrown to prison. But which they, you know. But anyways, 
Well, well, let, well, let me ask a question. Yeah, so go ahead. That's Sorry. quite the start. That's quite the story. That's not yeah. called Randy's Law, is it? No, I'm just kidding. No, no, <laughs> no. no. Uh, but I am. You, you mentioned something about um, you just threw it in there that the guy said, you know, you got the book thrown at you, um, and you're white, and it could have been you insinuated it would have been worse if you were a per- person of color. Yeah. So how does that play out? Well, talk to me a little bit about that. As I started doing this work in in recovery advocacy and criminal justice reform, I started to learn about the mass incarceration issue mm-hmm. and, and the war on drugs, right? And I didn't know anything about this. Like, and and I I remember being in prison though, and and I I did remember like talking to guys that didn't look like me, you know, that had very similar crimes to me, but they were sentenced to much longer times. And I didn't think about it then. Like it didn't, I didn't, it didn't equate to me then. Wow. Later when I got out and I started to read about and do this type of work, I realized about how, how huge the racial disparities are in drug sentencing that, you know, I was sentenced. So my, so that we call it the staircase bill. I mean, you're probably familiar like you, how many felony oh. points do you have? And how what level? So I was a level 32. I was way up on the staircase. Right. And that range was 87 to 108 months. I got sentenced to the low end of that range. But guys that more similar crimes to mine that were black or indigenous or native or other non non-white people got often got sentenced to the higher side of that. Uh and I and learning now only because of the color of their skin, right? Not and no 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 other reasons uh because of that's how the system, you know, do you the racist the, Do you think the system is that it like uh is it intentional by people or is it just like a subliminal bias or what what do you think it is I think it's intentional I do I think the our I don't care what system it is right the healthcare system the criminal justice system the whatever system it is they're all built under the umbrella of racism and white supremacy that's like, what, right? and that's what Don Coya says. Yeah. The system is perfectly designed for the results it's getting. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, and and although I got, I'm not, you know, I got wrapped up in that war on drugs and system. I it didn't impact me as severely or significantly as someone as someone that doesn't look like me, right? My maximum sentence they could have thrown the book at me was 156 months. Uh huh. And and had I not been white, I probably would have got closer to the 156 months versus the 87 months I got. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you had this first experience of going to the Capitol. I remember the first time I testified to very similar, a lot of emotions. I yeah. think uh, I, I even played the, the white stereotypical role um, by wearing a suit and a tie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, but I do think I had an effect because I do remember saying, uh, "My name is Phil Valentine. I'm a person in recovery." And usually, there's a lot of chaos, and people are talking, and they're up on, the, you know, the the senators and representatives are up there and there. But as yeah. soon as I said that, it's kind of like everything paused and stopped and listened, and I went, "Whoa!" So I just went yeah. because. It was so new that there weren't people in recovery giving testimony, and it's still incredibly powerful. And yeah. that led you to um, um, 
Well, where did it lead you, that first? I mean, you're always, seems like you're always testifying, always in front of people, always advocating. Yeah. So it led me to where I, I wanted to be more involved. And I, I ended up joining an organization about the same time as that. It's called the Minnesota Second Chance Coalition. And they, at that time, it was, it'd been around for about, not maybe 10 years, a decade, maybe not quite that long. It was the first organization that had at the so my friend the guy that asked me to testify mark hossey and a friend of his name sarah walker started that organization sarah was a defense attorney mark was another they're both attorneys and neither of them with criminal records which is hilarious mm-hmm. but they started but they're they believed that there there needed to be a voice at the capitol that reckon that uh spoke on behalf of people involved with the justice system mm. That was their that was their whole idea to start this organization, and then they recruited people that ha- actually were imp- impacted, and then and that's how I you know of course it was already going for quite a while, but they had then I joined the I joined the board of that. They asked me to sit on the board of directors. One of my first actually it was my second board appointment, but then I started getting involved with like planning days at the hill. Uh, so my first I think 2015. 16 maybe i can't remember exactly i have to look i look back but one of those two years i was the uh planning person for day at the hill to get all the people at the capitol and the the legislators and get and that was like although a ton of work and wow stressful and but it it the relationships i started to build from that in the community and then also at the capitol and and then combine that with testifying and then helping pass a law. like i wasn't the because there were dozens of testifiers so I wasn't, I don't want to make it sound like Randy was the only one. I, let me, but knowing that I, my, I had a part in, to play in that, that we passed a law that'll impact, you know, hundreds of people every year. Uh, I was just like, I thought, holy moly. I, and then going to the the rally at Washington in 2015, the United Face Addiction. And I got, I got a VIP pass. So I was in the back, you know, the tent with all the people and, and I just thought, God, this is this. I'm at home. Like I found my people. Like right. Mm-hmm. Like and they and and some of these people are doing amazing things on like Capitol Hill at a federal level too, right? Uh, but then I realized too that I could that the other part that I found out at at my state capitol, there really was no recovery voice happening. And to this day, it's kind of the same thing, which makes me sad because I keep I keep trying to recruit people to come join me, but and I realize I have a unique. Cause I, cause I've, I own my own business now and I can, I, I can, my schedule, I don't have to go to a full-time job. Right. I can, that makes a huge difference. Right. About advocacy. Right. I think, so me, I want to, what I love about it most is like knowing that I can be part of, I had, was very cynical at one time. You imagine this Phil. I used to believe that one person, one voice, one vote didn't make a difference. Like no one, no one's, I'm nobody, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying I'm this big anybody now, but, but I've, I proved myself completely wrong by doing like the work I do now around advocacy. So I call myself a citizen lobbyist because I don't get paid to do it. Right. And I don't know if I ever want to get paid to do it because I think once you start, like, if I collect money for this, I'll have to work an agenda for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I feel like what I get to do now, I get to do, and I, for me, like the the work I love to do the most is the work that doesn't pay any bills, but it's the it's the legislative policy advocacy uh, lobbying work that okay. is. Well, most- yeah. Let me ask you a question too. Yeah. That uh, 
So we know that uh, in the Recovery Coach Academy, we have one role of a recovery coach is to be an advocate. Yeah. But talk about you, how you got um, um, involved with CCAR and the Recovery Coach Academy and what, where that has led into the development yeah. of Bold North Recovery. Yeah, in 20, uh, I was serving as the overdose prevention manager for uh, what an organization called the Steve Rumler Hope Network, which is our naloxone 911 uh, organization in Minnesota. And <laughs> imagine this. Uh, I ended up, the executive director and I didn't get along at a lot of times. And uh, I quit uh, uh, 9.30 one night with an email saying effective immediately, which is a really crappy thing to do to someone. And I look back now and I have some regrets, but it was just, I was, things happened. But so it, I didn't know what I was going to do when after I quit, I knew I always tell people I wouldn't want to, I'm probably a hard person to manage. Like I wouldn't want to manage me <laughs> like, cause you know, I, 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 I'm sometimes I'm un, unconventional. I say things that people don't want to hear. I, I get, you know, I'm loud. I, I don't, I don't accept statements like, but that's the way we've always done it. Like I'm not okay with that. So anyways, I quit my job and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, I knew I, I didn't really want to go back to counseling at that point. And I really I started to learn more about peer recovery services and recovery coaching. And I knew Jesse Heffernan now for a, a year or two at this point. And he was running his little thing called Helios in, in Appleton. And I learned about anyways, I just decided like I want a recovery focused small business. And this and I know I'm not trying to eat up all the time, but I was driving my last duty for that job was to deliver four Narcan kits to a high school that I had just spent a year and a half implementing the first Narcan program in the state of Minnesota in a high school. And I had to deliver these four kits. That was my last duty the next morning. Well, it's Minnesota and it's February. And we guess what? We had a snowstorm. Not only a snowstorm, we had a blizzard. And so it took me five and a half hours to drive to White Bear Lake, which is normally about a 30 minute drive. Uh, and while I was driving, I got I changed my Facebook status before I left the house to left my old job and my phone at about 730 at o'clock blew up emails text messages phone calls everybody's like what happened why did you quit da, da, da. and there, and my friend who works for the Great Lakes Technology Transfer Center the mm -hmm. ATTC called me and said hey if you had a business a small business I have contract work for you I'm like what does that mean. Well, she goes like you could get paid to do some of the trainings you're like the overdose training you're already doing this and that. I'm like, really? Well, I said I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm taking two weeks off and I'm going to write a business plan and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this the right way. Well, my mind started racing as I'm in this car for five and a half hours, and I thought if I did have a company, what would the name be? And of course, then I started throwing around names like Bold and North and Recovery and. And it all came together and I got home that day after driving forever and I went on the Minnesota Secretary of State website to get my name. Like Bold North Recovery was, I was going to file it, pay the money, and that was my business. Didn't know what I was going to do yet, but that was my business. And uh, I got on the website and it's funny because somebody already, already had the name Bold North Recovery in Minnesota. And it was a towing company. Uh, and I get it. I used to drive tow truck, so they'd recover vehicles, right? So anyways, I was pretty mad, and my wife, like, what's wrong? And somebody has my name, and she goes, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm, you're gonna, she, And she's the one that said, you're gonna just going to be like a consultant, right? I said, I guess. So she's just like, so just put Bold North Recovery and Consulting just to get your name filed and get it done with. So I did. Uh, of course, I everything now I kind of try to keep short, but 
then I started talking to Jesse more and I said, I actually was going to, I wanted to work with another local organization that was already training peers here for our state. And they weren't interested in like expanding or hiring anyone. And it was really kind of shocking to me because I thought, why would you not want to do more of this? Mm -hmm. Anyways, they were not interested. So I said, fine, I'll go on my own. So I started researching and I came across CCAR. Your curriculum with your RCA and your ethics were already, uh, already met the approval for state of Minnesota without any extra work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... Uh, so I said, well, I got to become, how do I become a trainer? And that started my journey with CCAR and I, and it was great. I mean, it was just awesome. If it hadn't been for CCAR, I don't think Bold North Recovery would be here today because of you guys. And the, and the, the that year was such, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like Bold North Recovery, I was able to take a, some of that money and buy marketing material and buy like mm -hmm. things that I never could afford before because of all the contracting I did for you guys. So, so for me, that's why every chance I get when I can, I show up for CCAR. I appreciate like that's that. Just, um, well, we yeah. appreciate you as well. So what does Bold North Recovery do today? Hey, it's uh, training, education, and workforce development. Sounds good. As we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like us to know? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's recovery month, uh, just, just starting off and I wish if I had like, if I had a magic wand, you know, we say this all the time, if you had one, a wand and one wish would be, I wish more people. And that's why I think my, I love doing my advocacy training so much. I wish more people in recovery would get involved politically. Mm -hmm. uh, the only way we're going to change this thing and, and start to stop 110,000 people from dying every year is to have people like us at every table. Yeah. And, and I said this in my last testimony last year, it's not just at, so I'm to the point where now I don't think we need to be at their table anymore. I think we need to build our own table and they can join us. Yeah. Sounds right? familiar. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I said. I said that in a, in a testimony at the Capitol and a Senator came up to me after she goes, Randy, that line, that last line of your testimony was very powerful about building your own table and you can come join us. I said, that's what it has to be. So that's the only way this is going to work. I said, because, you know, guys like you and John Schinholzer, who I think are just really, you know, help move recovery in this world have, I, I mean, it's just the incredible work you guys have done. And, and we just need a lot more people like us, like I you, agree. we just don't have enough and we need to be at every table, like, and then our own table besides, but yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's build a system that a recovery system that other systems respond to us instead of the other way around. Right, I right, agree. Exactly. exactly. Randy, I thoroughly uh, admire your work and appreciate your advocacy so, so much. Uh, I know your dad didn't tell you this, but I'm really proud of you. Oh, You're thanks. You're an amazing Bill. human being. Thanks. Have a great day and uh, continue. Thanks, Phil. I'll see you soon, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Right. Take All care. Right. Yep. Bye. Bye. Are you ready to make a difference in the lives of others? If so, then you should consider becoming a recovery coach. Recovery coaches are trained to help people in recovery, seeking recovery, or struggling with addiction. They provide support, guidance, and resources to help people on their recovery journey. CCAR Training is the leading provider of recovery coach training programs. Our programs are designed to teach you the skills and knowledge, what we call the science, 
while giving you an understanding of your own art needed to be a successful recovery coach. We offer a variety of training options, most offered online. If you're interested in becoming a recovery coach or just learning more, I encourage you to visit our website or contact us today. We would be happy to answer any questions you have and help you get started on your journey to becoming a recovery coach. We hope you'll visit us at www.addictionrecoverytraining.org to learn more. Thanks for listening to the Recovery Matters Podcast, brought to you by the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening platform. You can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Recovery Matters Podcast for more content. You can watch this podcast in video form on our YouTube page, CCAR, the number four, Recovery. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at recoverymatterspodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love it if you could take a moment to rate our podcast. Your ratings and reviews help us reach more listeners and spread the word about our show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.